0: Okay, good morning. Uh, You are here to hear Scott and Jennifer Myrie talk about how to integrate curative uh, care with prevention, uh, the individual and the population, you're in the right place. Um, So we've locked the doors and you're here. So (laughs) what we're going to do before we get started with the content of our session is just to show you a kind of background uh, video of who we are and what we do. Consider it the kind of trailer to the main event. So, um, here we go. God is redeeming this beautiful broken world in obscure places and almost hidden ways. Twenty-two years ago, fresh out of medical school and residency, we joined a team on the Uganda-Congo border in a place literally translated as the end of the road. Since then, it has been our privilege and passion to be the hands of Jesus as he heals comforts and teaches those that most of society would consider inconsequential. Wherever evil causes suffering, God's people are called to do justice and love mercy as they humbly walk with God. Today we thank those of you who have been our partners and invite all of you to join in the journey by telling you some of the story of what God is doing through Surge in East Africa. In 2010, our mission leadership asked us to move to Kijabi, Kenya to fill two primary roles as doctors at Kijabi Hospital, and as area directors for all the search teams in East Africa. Kijabi Hospital provides compassionate and excellent health and spiritual care to the vulnerable with a heavy emphasis on training. In pediatrics, medicine, and obstetrics, we covered clinics, emergencies, the NICU, and the ICU, teaching conferences, daily rounds, and research projects. We both love teaching interns and residents as well as praying with families and walking them through critical times in their lives, in a place that specializes in high-level care with low-level resources.
1: In our five years at Kijabi, we've also served as school doctors at the Rift Valley Academy and supporting mission parents all over the continent. We have taken joy mentoring students, cheering on teams, teaching Sunday School and class sponsors.
0: Besides working as doctors, we serve as area directors for SURGE, overseeing and supporting seven teams in four countries. We mentor team leaders, offer spiritual encouragement, help set vision and goals,
1: step in with crisis management, plan retreats, and represent our field within the overall leadership of Surge. Our two Burundi teams work at Hope Africa University in Bujumbura and Kibuye, teaching medicine, English, and business administration. These teams are investing in leadership in one of the poorest, most unstable, least-serving countries in the world, viewing young people with skills and vision to help their own
0: people. We now have three teams in Kenya. Our Nairobi team trains Kenyans in Bible storying and sports ministry, offers compassionate primary health care to refugees and pastors to churches. Besides the medical work at Kijabi, our team teaches at Moffat Bible College in community development and provides counseling and support at RBA. Our newest team is just beginning at Chagoria Hospital, where we are providing faculty for a new family medicine residency program to
1: raise up Kenyan doctors. The South Sudan team in Mundri trains primary school teachers in a country struggling to rebuild after decades of war, and partners with the local church in theological education, health outreaches, and clean water.
0: Our former home in Bunwujo, Uganda, still hosts a holistic team working in education, health, Bible translation, church leadership training, agriculture, and water engineering. Christ School Bunwujo provides opportunity for generational change, and the first young doctors to receive scholarships through the Cooley Memorial Leadership Fund, are back to work. In Fort Porto, we train women in arts and business while discipling them as followers of Jesus.
1: Thank you for being true friends to us, for laying down your lives to bring the kingdom in Burundi, Kenya, South Sudan, and Uganda, as well as into our hearts. Your love enables us to reach into forgotten places, to renew flagging spirits with the truth and hope of the gospel, to restore the broken and heal the sick. Jesus ends this discourse saying, In this world you will have trouble, but be of good
0: cheer, I have overcome the world. Our world is embroiled in trouble. Everywhere we encounter almost unimaginable poverty, life-threatening illness, binding fears. But this is not the end of the story. Jesus tells us he has overcome, and redemption seeps in slowly with every courageous day these teens invest. Love compels us, and love will have the day in the end.
1: Would you pray for peace, for provision, for personnel?
0: God is redeeming this beautiful, broken world in obscure places and almost hidden ways. Join God's story of love overcoming. How to try to integrate the care of the individual and the population and we thought that using this image of the forest and the trees would uh, help illustrate how we're trying to do this. Uh, we feel that it's critically important as to do as Jesus did to uh, care for the individual but also uh, critically important to see the root causes of the uh, larger population. So Jennifer is going
1: to share a case study with us. Okay, so I'm going to start with a story, and you're going to discuss some questions around your tables, so pay attention to a little bit of the story. So as you heard um, in the video, we moved in 1993 to a little town on the border of Uganda and Congo, and it was a place of astonishing beauty and rich tradition and very wonderful community, very welcoming people, direct, resilient people, but... Um, behind that National Geographic simplicity and exotic um, scenery, we saw that there was a high cost to poverty and spiritual oppression, and about a third of babies in the district where we work um, die before they reached age five. It was rare to meet a woman who had not lost several children. Every woman had lost at least one. Um, kids were unable to stay in school. And our team started working. We had an unwritten language. We worked in the government hospital. We worked in community health. We took a few years to settle in. And just when we thought things were going okay, um, a rebel war spilled over our border. We ran for our lives along with tens of thousands of our neighbors. We came back, and everybody was in IDP camps. So this is the late 90s in western Uganda. And what does the gospel look like in that kind of a situation? Is this loudness about right? Okay. So what if Jesus were walking among the Babuisi Be- the Beb- in the Bacandra of western Uganda? What would he do? So I'm going to tell the story of a woman named Dorothy. I met Dorothy when she brought her child to our health center. Um, the baby, his name was Mumbere. He was listless. He was febrile. He was very close to dying. And she um, laid day after day with him on a mat. We didn't even have enough beds at that point, so most patients were on the floor And I was working to try to bring him back to life, treating his malaria, giving him some extra nutrition. But Dorothy was a really frustrating person to try and help. She lied about almost everything, her age, um, what had happened to her. And she seemed almost indifferent to her baby's condition. But day after day, uh, with some antibiotics and foods, um, with us trying to be the hands of Jesus, uh, healing and caring and providing... She built some trust and her story came out, she was a teenager, um, she wouldn't name the father of her child and in addition to a baby, he had given her HIV AIDS. So she was one of the first women that we enrolled in what we later called the Kwejuna Project. Now in Western Uganda, Webale Kwejuna" is a greeting for a woman who's just delivered a baby and that literally means thank you for surviving, which shows you kind of the general outlook on maternal mortality there. And this project um, was funded by USAID grants who provide um, prevention of mother-to-child transmission of HIV. So Dorothy had had been so ashamed to reveal her status, but as this project kind of helped reverse stigma in our community um, with medical care and food, it actually kind of began began to represent um, acceptance and celebration. And soon her mother began visiting with her. Um, Her mom had been... uh, and, and, yeah, I forgot about this. We would bring all these women together every quarter. That was part of our stigma reduction. And we had these parties. And they were, like, really kingdom parties because people were happy to have that connection with other women in the same situation. And they were getting their kids tested and finding out who wasn't, you know, positive and really celebrating together. So when Dorothy's mom started coming, um, she was she is an older lady that had been worn by decades of resting in existence for the lamb. And we eventually enrolled Dorothy into um, care for heart, you know, anti-AIDS medication. And her heart was softened, but she was still a teenager, and she still had a lot of scars from what had hap- all the things that had happened to her that did not heal. And because she also had tuberculosis, which is a common co-infection, and she did not take her medicine, she eventually died. And Mumbari was left in the care of this little grandmother. And I, I didn't even think she could possibly bring him in for care and he was on heart himself and needed food regularly and a lot of checkups. And, uh, but there she would come with him on her back and she would even bring us like a pineapple from her garden and um, one day I asked her like how she did it and he said, she said to me, he's the only picture I have of my daughter. And um, those are really words of courage and commitment but they're also words of a hard reality. So take three minutes now around your table, and I want you to think about the story of Dorothy and Mumberry and discuss what did you hear in that story that you would consider to be curative medical care, what did you hear that you would consider to be population-based or preventive care, and what was the advantage or the limitations of those kinds of care in this situation? So just to get you thinking. Three
0: minutes. All right. All right. Close enough. So, uh... was three minutes. close. I said close enough. Um, let me just give you a, kind of the big picture overview of where we want to go in this next uh, half hour or so. We want to talk about the biblical basis for uh, this integrated model. Uh, we want to talk a little bit about the history of uh, Christian mission and the integrated model. Um... We want to present to you a, a, kind of a matrix for thinking about how to do this and then share with you our experience and our story, um, making the case for doing not either or, but a both and for curative care and uh, prevention at the population level. So the, uh, the title of the seminar was The Sparrow in the Kingdom. The, the sparrow argument is not, is not difficult. Um, I think many of those that are in the room are, if you're a physician or a nurse or some healthcare provider, you're probably uh, in that profession because you wanted to follow the model of Jesus, follow in his footsteps, uh, caring for the sick, uh, expressing God's love for the individual. Jesus healed many sick people. If you look in Matthew 9 alone, uh, you'll see that he healed a paralytic. There was a bleeding A woman with chronic bleeding touched his robe, was healed. He resurrected a dead girl, uh, gave sight to two blind men, and speech to a mute man. And uh, this passage follows in uh, the subsequent chapter. And this is is, uh, self-evident. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. Even the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Jesus expressed concern for the individual. God loves you. Jesus loves you. That's that's a, It's not a hard argument to present. I do want to uh, make a little bit uh, more uh, urgent argument for Jesus' concern for the big picture. Uh, I think there is evidence that uh, Jesus cared about the crowds in. Uh, Matthew, uh, going back to Matthew 9 where, where there's that long list of the healings it says Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease on an individual basis and every affliction. But <clears throat> here's the emphasis, when he saw the crowds he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus cared about the individual but he also cared about the whole world and uh, had compassion the crowds how did he reach the crowds well he was <clears throat> a shepherd uh, for those uh, sheep without a shepherd but to do that he appointed many others to uh, multiply his efforts so here we go he 's <clears throat> multiplying himself at least twelve times and uh, he also when he was teaching the crowds he uh, another kind of learning point is that he Taught using broad principles. A lot of the parables that he uh, used were uh, teaching principles to the crowds, uh, using principles for how, how to live their lives.
1: Okay, so uh, we move from the biblical basis then. I, I hope we don't have to convince you too much about that too. The history of missions, and if you've been around this conference for a while, I think you've been hearing about people who've been working overseas, and maybe many of you have already been on short-term trips, and uh, the mission hospital is a key part of the history of missions in many places in the world because early missionaries went and found that people were desperate and, and sick and were able to bring kind of the hands of Jesus kind of care to them. And that's a wonderful tradition that we um, are proud to be part of. But you may not also be aware that many of the early missionaries were also public health, they didn't even have a word for that, but they were public health professionals. And an example is that the Church of Scotland Presbyterians that came into Kenya in the early 1900s um, battled against female genital mutilation before it was like kind of PC and cool to do so. And they um, had a major decision of how much to accept the culture that they came to, which is often what we need to do. But in this case, um, they chose to say that this was a matter of justice for the girls and um, unacceptable. And to, go, to understand how deep that went, I have a quote here from Jomo Kenyatta, who became Kenya's first prime minister and then president, In 1930, he said, and this is just to show you sort of what they were up against, the real argument lies not in the defense of the general surgical operation or its details, but in the understanding of a very important fact in tribal psychology of the Kikuyu, namely that this operation is still regarded as the essence of an institution which has enormous educational, social, moral, and religious implications, quite apart from the operation itself. For the present, it is impossible for a member of the tribe to imagine an initiation without clitoridectomy, therefore... The abolition of the surgical element in this custom means the abolition of the whole institution. So missionaries had to make really hard choices about how they were going to enter cultures, what they were going to um, accept, what they were going to stand up against, and that was a a public health view that missionaries have had from the very beginning. So um, going back to our theme today, how do we integrate, um, how do we look at the sparrow and look at the kingdom, see the crowd and see the individual patient as we go out from here?
0: So, uh, we have this little matrix um, there 's two different spectra that we want you to to think about. One is uh, the spectrum of individual and the population, and the other is uh, curative care and prevention and So we want to just kind of uh, take you through the uh, issue that it relates to the, our presenting case to Dorothy Mumberry and uh, Think about how her case and, and uh, her problem, HIV/AIDS, can be uh, approached from all of, on all of these spectrums. So again, if we start with sort of the self-evident one, uh, providing curative care uh, for the individual. In Dorothy's case, uh, we gave her highly active antiretroviral treatment. The, the three drug uh, standard of care now for treating people with AIDS. And uh, there is now literature that suggests that uh, in the United States, people that are taking uh, heart says (coughs) they have uh, life expectancy that approaches that of uninfected individual. A person with AIDS now can live up to age 70, kind of normal life expectancy. This is Probably not the case uh, yet in Africa, but uh, there is, uh, and this is probably heart is not a true cure. It doesn't, HIV splices itself into a patient's DNA, and we don't yet have a way to uh, splice or to resect it from the patient's genome. But curative care does uh, certainly extend life expectancy for patients with AIDS. If we think about uh, prevention at the individual level, uh, the Bactrum, the trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole prophylaxis, originally uh, given to prevent pneumocystis pneumonia, was found in, uh, published in 2004 by John O'Merman in The Lancet, who is uh, the uh, head of the CDC in Uganda, showed that tri- <coughs> trimoxazole prophylaxis reduced all cores all-cause mortality by 46%. So this is a massive uh, reduction, uh, a massive prevention uh, strategy at the individual level for those infected with HIV.
1: Okay, so probably the easiest quadrants to understand are the individual cure and the population prevention, you know, the lower left and the upper right. So population-based prevention of HIV, Uganda is quite well known for leading the way in the world with their ABC campaign. So ABC is abstinence, be faithful, use condoms, and be faithful includes sort of partner reduction to reduce risk of HIV And it's been very controversial now looking back to say how successful, how much of the success of Uganda can we attribute to that campaign? However, living there in the 90s, um, I would say that it was very successful in our experience. And um, part of that was just Museveni being so outspoken and, and again, reducing the stigma and talking about it. However you look at the cause, prevalence went down in adults in Uganda from about 15% in 1990 to about 6% in 2000. And six. Then, uh, also another example of population-based prevention was our PMTCT program, where you're screening all pregnant women in the population, and you're providing um, antiretrovirals during labor and delivery to reduce transmission to babies. Then the last um, quadrant there is a population-based cure, which... Um, may not be immediately evident, but it actually does happen. And in the 90s, there were three studies in Africa, one in Tanzania and two in Uganda, that were looking at the efficacy of using mass treatment for non-HIV sexually transmitted infections and seeing if that um, impacted incidence of HIV. And the Tanzania branch of that study did show a huge effect. Um, The Uganda branches, they were further along in the epidemic, and it didn't have quite as much effect. And even um, in the last year, there was a paper from Norway looking at schistosomiasis and the idea that if we treated a mass treatment for schistosomiasis, which can cause genital ulceration, would that have an impact on HIV transmission? So there is that aspect of the population-based care as well. Um, We're going to move now to um, examples of this from our particular story. Um, We told you we went to Uganda in 93. And... We um, started immediately working in the government health system, seeing sick patients, and it was quickly very overwhelming, overwhelming numbers of sick people. Um, but we were also committed to investing in population-based care as well, and we started training community health workers, traditional birth attendants, um, we started a nutrition project, this HIV prevention Quijuna project, and we kept trying to do both. And why did we do that? Well, we believed that, that, two, that prevention and cure together were stronger, than either one of them alone. And bringing those two kind of cords made a stronger um, rope. And we're gonna start with then looking um, specifically at the advantages of population-based prevention, and then we'll look a little bit about cure as well.
0: Apple a day keeps a doctor away. Uh, That's prevention at the individual level. we, there's a number of reasons why we believe that uh, population-based prevention uh, works. Again, we keep coming back to this five-year project that we did in collaboration with uh, the Elizabeth Glaser Pediatric AIDS Foundation, USAID, and the Uganda um, Ministry of Health. <clears throat> in that five years, we, test, we brought uh, PMC, PMTCT services to a district where there was none. Um, and we tested over 36,000 women over that five-year period, found more than uh, 1,000 HIV-positive women, women who who did not know they were carrying the virus at the time, and provided at that time what was considered standard of care for preventing uh, HIV transmission to the baby, which was single-dose novirapine. There are more sophisticated and effective methods now using more drugs, but effectively we Uh, By using a single dose of Navirapine, we could reduce transmission from about uh, 30% down to 15%. Now, uh, most women are using heart, and it's going down to, like, less than 1%. But we still did prevent a lot of uh, HIV transmission to to kids. The other uh, big project that we did in the early years that we were in Uganda... We saw that over 80% of births were occurring in the home. Uh, most of these were attended by what are called traditional birth attendants, um, mostly illiterate women without formal training, but had some experience because of uh, their interests or whatever, growing up as uh, women in the home. And uh, we focused on trying to raise the level of care that these uh, traditional birth attendants were providing and. Uh, felt that we really did uh, reduce maternal mortality during that time through the training of these TBAs. Uh, the other very important part of public health uh, and prevention is partnership. And uh, I think at any level, uh, it has to be done in collaboration with uh, government and with uh, local people on the ground we worked with uh, small NGOs that uh, were bringing together HIV-positive uh, patients. So I love the little um, motto of our local group in Bubandi. says, hope never runs dry. And uh, they, because they were uh, kind of part of the community, they were able to, just like uh, the group that we had brought together with Dorothy, able to provide support uh, to one another. But we also did a lot of, uh, in the... The, uh, when we found kids that were HIV-exposed, uh, there was a number of uh, partnerships that we developed to provide alternative uh, feeding methods to breastfeeding to try to reduce uh, HIV transmission in the breastfeeding period. We lived in a, in a local goat culture. All, there were, people didn't raise cows, but they raised goats. And uh, we were able, in collaboration with the community, to develop uh, goat's milk uh, to HIV-exposed kids because formula feeding was not neither safe nor affordable in our area.
1: Okay. Um, value for money. So you cannot beat value for money with nutrition. Um, by providing early childhood nutrition, you have a long-term impact on a child's um, life, um, not just their survival, but their success in school. And um, there was a I think we have a picture of this Lancet article from 2008, which did a kind of a meta-analysis of the evidence for early childhood nutrition. And the impact that it has on the entire economy of a country and development of a country is um, inestimable. So that is a a place where you could say that public health is also quite valuable. And the last last advantage we came up with is just – Public health provides a real opportunity for putting the word in there with the deed. So we're kind of doer people, and we pray with our patients, and we like to be on a team that's very holistic and is planning churches. But public health gives us a chance to also talk to people about their hearts. And this is an example of – it's got a fishbone diagram. So in our time in Uganda, we did some, uh, a qualitative health project, interviews and interviews and interviews with uh, young people and old people, trying to understand what drives this behavior that's so risky for HIV-AIDS, the early sexual debut and the multiple partners. And it's just fascinating. You get all these interviews, you sit down, you analyze them, you get keywords, and you come up with the concepts and look at what's driving it and what's preventing it. And that helps you target sort of where are you going to invest your efforts in prevention. And that's an open door for the gospel because – we know that you can't come up to me and tell me to be a better person, and I say, okay, I'm going to be a better person. No, I need Jesus. I need the Holy Spirit in my life. I need the gospel to transform me, and that's an open door. HIV, AIDS, education, and prevention is an open door for gospel transformation in the community as well.
0: Of course, we're not trying to lure anybody away from uh, taking care of the sick. Um, but we are trying to help you understand why we do it. Uh, And one of the the public health-related reasons that we believe in curative care is that it informs our understanding of the problems. Because we're in the hospital or in the clinic seeing patients, we have exposure to uh, what's happening uh, in the day-to-day in our community. Uh, Because we were working in a hospital, when we would see spikes of diarrheal disease, uh, it informed how we wanted to uh, think about doing prevention, um, checking with the local Chipotle's to see if they were, uh, you know, using their appropriate hand washing. Um, that's my one joke for the thing. Okay. Um, so, but we do believe, as we said in the biblical basis, it does communicate love for the patient.
1: Uh, providing curative care is also an excellent opportunity for teaching and raising up the next generation of health workers. And um, if you're interested afterwards, we have a lot of our Burundi team sitting here at this table who are doing that in a Kibuye teaching hospital. But. Um, also there's people here from Kijabi that we've worked with Wayne I don't know where you went but we did a lot of um, bedside teaching lecturing um, to nurses to medical students to residents and there's nothing like that kind of hands-on taking care of patients together to really um, be able to raise uh, build capacity in the local health system and lastly we just want to say it's fun and uh, I was reading Psalm 147 yesterday, and the first verse starts off with "Give praise to the Lord." And usually, it's like he did this, he did that, did that, and then it's, it's a, because it's pleasant to do so, and it's actually okay to do something just because it's really enjoyable. And taking care of sick patients, watching a blue baby start breathing, watching a teenager with TB go from being you know 35 pounds to 120 pounds or something, is a, quite an amazing visual representation of the resurrection that Jesus is bringing into the world. And there's nothing like it. We love doing it. So back to our story of Dorothea Mubare. Uh, we didn't ask you to give any answers. We just had you discuss at your table and I hope you came up with some of the same things that we did. Um, I think you've seen that caring for them requires both a curative and a preventive approach to medicine, both an individual focus and a population focus. By treating their opportunistic infections like TB and providing heart, their viral loads decreased and they live longer. In turn, that individual hope sparked community-wide acceptance of universal screening. In turn, that focus on prevention of mother-to-child transmission built capacity with the whole antenatal care system and better maternal care for all mothers and babies. So the poles of care keep looping back to augment each other. Caring for the sparrow and the crowd brings synergy to your work. And that's the one take-home message that we want you to go home with, is that you don't have to choose between the population and the patient, but caring for both brings synergy. So just a few closing thoughts on how this happens. Um, First, I want to plead for the long-term view, because we had to live in that community. We lived in Uganda for 17 years, and then we lived in Kenya for the last five. And um, You've got to be there some time to learn the language, to build trust with the local health system, to really form partnerships. Um, you have to be out, out traveling village to village and teaching and preventing and taking care of people's sick patients so that they are open to listening to what you have to say. And um, I know there's a lot of short-term model going on out there, and that's not bad, but I want to put in the plea for the, the long-term model as well. And then secondly, um, telling people how to change their p- behavior, as we said, is not enough that people need the power of the gospel. They need grace um, to give strength. And so along with medicine and food, please bring the good news of Jesus. Uh, third, um, we, have, we, we did a lot of dr- addressing structural injustice as well as just kind of keeping our nose to the ground in our community. So... Um, there's a lot that's wrong in the world that puts Dorothy and Mulberry in a vulnerable position and visits to organizations to the Capitol, phone calls. Um, Scott, used to, we used to say that my stethoscope was um, second to my cell phone once we got cell phones, which wasn't there at the beginning. But anyway, as the most important medical instrument to try to get what we needed for the people that needed it. Um, fourth, uh, conducting research um, because... This is an area of the world where not a lot of research is done and yet a lot of the sickness is and first world solutions cannot always be applied to majority world problems and so research needs to be done. Um, And lastly... I just want to point out that this is a team effort that even though we've been talking about we did this, we did that, we did not do anything alone. We are in partnership with the um, Ugandans that were there. We're in partnership with the rest of our team, with people who are working in a school, who are planning churches. Um, I just saw Scott Wilbeck there. So there's some of our partners are still around here um, that we worked with in all of this, and it was fun. So we did all this for individual patients that we came to care deeply about, but also for the broader population. And Jesus sent us so that the next generation of Dorothys would not turn to selling their bodies as a way to meet their needs, so that they would have options and choices to grasp life. And I think we are now open for um, a period of questions. So I don't know if there's like, go questions with the microphone. Anyway, you're supposed to have questions because we were told to hold this like 30, 35, 40 minutes so that there was 20 minutes of questions. Um,
0: I imagine there's a group of people here that are considering um, Masters in Public Health. Um, would you have pros and cons to that?
1: Yeah, we both, okay, so when I was in medical school, I went to Hopkins, and there was a program where you could get the MPH as part of your medical school degree, and I really seriously considered that, but people told me, oh, go out and get experience, it'll mean more to you. And anyway, I wanted to get married, so we, um, <laughs> I waited. So we were in Uganda for seven years, and then we took a sabbatical, and we came back and did our Master's in Public Health at Hopkins, and it was an awesome year, and that was the year in which we wrote the proposal for the Quajuna Project and for the Bodhi Nutrition Program. So that, that that was his the Quaiduna project, you know, Prevention of Other was basically his master's thesis and the nutrition program was basically my master's thesis, and then we went back and implemented those. So it really helped us um, broaden our view of healthcare on a population wide basis. So yes, it is a very good degree to have, and even, you know, if you're not a doctor, Having, If you don't have time for doing both, having a teamwork approach where somebody on the team has an MPH and other people have MD degrees would be also excellent.
0: Yeah, and I think having a little bit of experience uh, and then coming back and doing it uh, helps you to know what you want to get out of it and what are the right questions to be asking as you go through it is fantastic. Good morning. I'm a doctor from Nigeria. I'm in Public Health.
1: Yes. So
0: my, my question is about the patient who uh, had HIV. Like, how do you like how do you cope with a shortage of people? Do you like work with the government, like the healthcare workers, to get to the patients? Like, did you follow her up to her house you know, like because I know there's there's a huge lack of people that can do that, and sometimes even getting to their home is sometimes very remote. And so that kind of follow-up is so difficult. How do you cope with that? Because a lot of times, you know, my point is on call features, you know, that how, do you, how do you maintain that kind of follow-up? Because it also affects the outcome. Uh,
1: <laughs> well, um, yeah, we are living... The, the, these stories are from a time when we were living in Uganda, and there was no, you know, there's no phones, there's no addresses, there's no whatever. So we worked very extensively with those traditional birth attendants because they were the ladies in the community, and they... Um, we encouraged people to, to tell their TBAs their status so that they would have an advocate. And amazingly, actually, people were pretty open where we were as the things got going. And then the other thing we did for follow-up were these big what we called the kingdom parties. So we had um, some grants for supplemental nutrition, and we would set up making it really easy for people to get their follow-up medicine, their follow-up tests for their baby, their follow-up food, their enrollment into that, all in one place, one time, And really the advantage of that too was that they came together and it was like a big support group. Um, And that helped our follow-up considerably. But that is a huge barrier is um, if people don't want to disclose their status, I can't as a, I'm not very subtle in that community. So if I walked up to someone's house and kept coming to visit them, people would start asking like, why does she keep coming to your house? Um, so you have to work with, I think, working with the TBAs and the community health workers is better on that. And I think
0: we did spend a lot of money on incentives to bring people back when we had the, the kingdom party. Uh, we wanted to come back. We wanted to weigh the patients. We wanted, you know, at that time, we, we didn't have PCR to test the kids to see if they had uh, HIV immediately after birth. We. We were just doing the antibody test, and we are supposed to wait 18 months out. And so getting follow-up was really difficult. But we gave away, like, women would come, and they'd get these monster bags of uh, food uh, and cooking oil. And we gave them, like, cash. Trans- they, they'd figure, like, how we can't, like, walk home with this stuff. We've got to get a, you know, a taxi, a pickup truck to take us home. And we would give them cash. So that they could come you know and go home with all this stuff, and uh, when another little thing we did uh, I said eighty percent of women were delivering their babies in the home, one of the kind of uh, broader antenatal impacts that um, we were trying to get you know women to to deliver in the health center, so we could give those babies the navirupine immediately at birth, uh, and so we started we spent like three dollars to buy this, you know, the African Kikoi, the Kitengi, this, you know, the beautiful cloth. I, I, I had, like, the, these uh, guys would bring them from Congo, like, by the truckload. And uh, we, every woman that delivered in a health center with a midwife, at the time of her birth, would get one of these cloths. And uh, we doubled the number of uh, health unit-based deliveries because we were giving away this $3 cloth. And I think if that may have... You know, we went from like 1,500 to 3,000 health unit-based deliveries, and those then are deliveries not attended by a traditional birth attendant, but by real trained nurse midwife. And I think, you know, the additional uh, women that maybe didn't bleed to death may have outnumbered the number of uh, children who we prevented uh, HIV uh, in the in the birth. So it does. I think you have to be willing to. Uh, spend some money and forget about, like, people would question and say, like, is this really sustainable? Like, can, can you... And no, no, it's not, but there's that Sparrow principle and, like, it's important for this individual, and we did it for this period of time, and we helped with these women, and I, I, I push back against it, the concept of sustainability. It, sometimes it's used as an excuse not to do something. So... Question from this side. I am a field and practice doctor in Fredericksburg,
1: Virginia, and I do short-term um, missions. And I have a lot of uh, our patients and community people who would like to get involved in um, seeing how they can help support missions uh, that we go to. How would you incorporate, um, I guess community efforts to help support? Short term or long term mission how you the best thing that they can, can they do? Uh, well, clearly, um, having a long if you're going to do short term missions, ideally having a long term relationship as a short term missionary or your community hooking up with another community that's, or a mission agency who's doing reputable work. Um, I usually tell people number one is like, Uh, being willing to give some of yourself your time and your money and prayer and um, when I was little I prayed for missionaries and that's how God changed my heart and I do believe in prayer so everyone everywhere you are you can be praying for missionaries and that makes a huge difference in survival I don't know why you know we're kind of like last men standing sometimes when things go down and I believe in the power of the prayer that people are giving and secondly um Going uh, uh, with your money and your body to another place is great, but try to find an organization that's there all the time that you can input into. And for medicine, um, certainly there's hospitals that we need short-termers to come and give a spell to the long-termers who need to take a vacation or see their kids or whatever like that. Short-term community public health, um, I think you've got to definitely have a partnership on the ground because you just can't come in short-term and understand the culture and language and issues quickly enough to be effective. And I I guess on that note, um, this table over here has – Joanna in the black dress in the back is um, a recruiter for our agency, so we're looking for um, doctors and public health people. We have numerous opportunities. There's some cards on this table that tell you about them. There's also a little information that uh, we're having a dinner um, across the street at the Magic Mushroom or something like that. Mellow Mushroom, Mellow Mushroom. (laughs) It's going to be a lot of fun. And yeah. (laughs) And uh, for anybody who's interested, we'd love to talk to you more. And um, I also put our prayer cards up there because we would love it if you prayed for us. And I think that does, praying for missionaries does, you know, get your heart going towards um, those people groups. More? This may be another type of question. I'm a family physician, and um, I'm doing a master's in global health. I just came back from the starting a project, and I want to know how do you cope with your family life, and how does all of this come together in, in your own family setting? And okay, super awkwardly, we have a child in this room who's a medical student that we won't point out. But um, <laughs> we, have, we have four children, and, yeah, I went with um, an eight-month-old baby when we arrived, and the other ones were born and grew up there. And I don't want to speak for them because I wasn't a missionary kid and I grew up in, like, small-town America. But my impression is that they um, have told me that they wouldn't trade that life for any other life. They had really great friends. They, had, they lived in a beautiful place. They had a lot of adventures. And um, by God's grace alone, they're all alive, and they're all pretty happy, normal people. <laughs> <laughs> Normal is a relative <laughs> I'm going to make a, a shameless
0: uh, plug here. <clears throat> this is a recently uh, published book uh, called A Chameleon, A Boy, and a Quest. And it's written by Jennifer. Uh, just published by New Grove Press. And uh,
1: it's... On the, f- the theme of family, I wrote it for my kids. So it's like, uh, I would call it magical realism for a young adults category, and it's uh, set in Africa, so it's kind of a fun, cool story. It's not about medicine and missions or whatever, really. It's, um, it's, a, it's a story, but I have uh, a free copy right there, so if somebody wants it, they can come up and just ask me for it. I'll have another free copy at the Surge booth, and there's cards over there if you want to just know how to order it. You can order it on Amazon or on the New Growth Press site. It's um, mostly appropriate for, like, age
0: 8 to 14. I think Narnia in Africa. <laughs> Talking chameleons, <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Uh, maybe one more
1: question. Uh, you've been raising your hand there. Maybe two more questions. Actually, I actually have a question. Kind of along the same lines of what was just asked. Um, as a clinician, as a you know, physician in the hospital, who is a passion for both curative and population health, how do you decide where to spend your time? spend it in the hospital when it is so overwhelming for you personally or do you spend it in a population you know, out in the community where you see the greatest um, potential for change?
0: Again, I, I mean, I think it's, you know, there's this spectrum and uh, there's, uh, it's uh, both and. I think we um, also had we were in Uganda for 17 years and there was kind of some uh, different phases And we were doing this uh, PMTCT project with the Elizabeth Glaser Foundation it was five years in which I was heavily, heavily involved on the population and prevention side I did have uh, my curative side was seeing uh, AIDS patients and that we were just rolling. was just rolling out um, antiretroviral therapy for, for free, and uh, that, that was a really great experience for us. But I think it's uh, a leading of the spirit and uh, part of your uh, personal interests. But it's a, a blend, and it has Evan.
1: Uh, there, are always, there will always be more patients that you, can take, that you than you can take care of. There will always be more ideas than you can fulfill. So um, getting the Holy Spirit to show you where, where is God moving in this situation and how can I come along board and what's in my heart. Like, it's, if you love doing C-sections, then go someplace where you can do C-sections. God gave you that love. If you love teaching in a village, that's good, too. Like, we need all of that. Yeah.
0: Oh, one last question here. Just a question about your interaction with the government and the local health sector. As you were thinking about public health projects, how much of that was initiated by you, and how much of that was in discussion that the local communities asked you to try to address these problems and then start programs in that area?
1: Well, a famous story is, like, we came... We came with this, like, I don't know if anybody remembers back in the day, but there was Merrill Ewert was a teacher at Wheaton, and we had taken a couple of classes, and we were all into, like, we are going to sit down with the community. They are going to list out their top priorities, and that is going to be it. So we went to our first community meeting, and they said, we need a bridge, and we need shoes, and, okay, well, they did kind of need a bridge because it was really hard to go up and down the mountains and valleys, and the school wouldn't let their kids in without shoes for some reason, so they wanted shoes for their kids. So we had to kind of start with where they were, although I wouldn't call those to be, like, the main impactful, life-changing things that we could have done um, and so I think there's a lot of education of the community that goes along as you're doing it so that other people can see. But there's really great um, resources out there for community mapping where you get people to, like, um, map out what, what their resources are and to think in a positive way about what strengths they have and what they want to address. Um, I think that the focus on nutrition and on maternal survival and child health is very much at the heart of the culture that we are working in, people wanted their children to survive, and they wanted their children to go to school, and they wanted to have their children to have education. Um, so, a combination of kind of community meetings, and then also trying to guide the process with data, because as people can understand and see the data, they'll come on board with what are the, the interventions that work. Um, that we we always worked in very close collaboration. We. I don't know why, but we just had a really great relationship with the local health center and the government that we worked we, hard on. We always,
0: we volunteered in the government system. We never built a mission hospital. We believed that trying to raise the level, of the quality of care in the government system was an important and long-term strategy. Very frustrating because we didn't have the power to hire and fire when People didn't show up to work or they showed, nurses show up to work drunk or, or you know, extracting money from patients to change dressings or do anything like get out of a chair is it, extremely frustrating. But I, I also want to just put it in the term for the, the long-term view. I think we were there for about 10 years and it felt like we just crashed through the glass ceiling and all of a sudden the government uh, started inviting us to be on the district health uh, steering committee and being involved in uh, some of these local NGOs, we just felt like wow. It, this, it came kind of all at once and there was this sense of trust and uh, people started calling us sons and daughters of the soil. And like, this was, it, but that did not happen at the beginning. A lot of headbanging on the walls and a lot of frustration but uh, certainly I do believe that uh, partnership with government and with the local community is
1: absolutely critical. And I just want to add to that, too, um, since Scott will also ask the question. I mean, a, a lot of that breaking through comes by walking with people in their suffering. And so um, people would say to us, there, we, we ran when everybody else ran when there was gunfire, absolutely, but we came back. And so they would say, you came back to and you helped us when there was war, And then we had an Ebola epidemic, and they said, you stayed with us when there was Ebola. And those are the two things, plus we built an airstrip, which has no, like, suffering kind of thing at all, but it made people feel proud. So (laughs) staying in the war, staying in Ebola, building an airstrip, um, those things built a ton of trust with the people, and they saw, okay, these people aren't just here to get something out of it, They're, they're with us. And... Um, I went to the session yesterday that was really powerful that said Jesus, when you're in a place of suffering, recognizing that Jesus is there, I think it was last night the plenary speaker said that too, that is true and that's part of what makes it beautiful to be there for a long time and that's part of what shows people the heart of God.